You're probably, by now, you're probably wondering what I'm doing up here, and to be honest, so am I, right? Uh, uh, nearest I can, I, I can tell is that Kevin had gone through his fingers and toes and asking people to preach and couldn't find anyone, so he decided he'd settle on uh, the most handsome youth director that the church has. But we, we've been going through this sermon series on strong church, what it means to be a strong church, what it looks like to be a strong church. And we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the, first, uh, to the Corinthians, not because they were a strong church, but because they were not a strong church. So hopefully we'll hone in on what a strong church looks like, or, or at least what a strong church doesn't look like. So as I said, I, I'm the youth director here. My name's Zach, and, and I work with the teenagers. And one of the things that I love about working with teenagers is that I get to be a big kid. A lot of times, uh, Kevin uh, and I will meet, and, and he'll be talking to me, and he's like, you know, I uh, he brings up philosophy of, of youth ministry. He says, you're a very relational uh, youth minister. And that's what I like about you. And, and really, when, when he's saying this to me, I'm, I'm nodding my head like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love to be relational. I love to get to know students. But in, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, my philosophy of ministry is that if I survive it, the students should at least have a fun time watching it. But you know what I dislike about youth ministry is there's always that one student that, that knows everything. They've been there. They've experienced it. They know more than you. And the, first, and the Corinthians were no different. They were an immature people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. The Corinthians were immature. They were self-centered. In fact, in, in chapter 5, he says, but you yourselves are arrogant. They were arrogant, prideful, self-centered, immature, they had yet to realize their true identity in Christ. They were still living in two worlds. They were living as if they were still of the world when they should have been living as if they were of Christ. And when I think about the fact that they were living in two worlds, I think of, of a couple that is living in two worlds. A few weeks ago, we had the interview of the century, right? Harry and Meghan sat down with Oprah to discuss their family drama. And do you know that 17 million people tuned in to watch? 17 million. And why? We tuned in because we wanted to see the drama. We wanted to see the dirty laundry. We wanted to hear everything that they had to spill on the family. And you know what? I doubt that their family relationship was better for it. I doubt that Prince uh, Charles and Queen Elizabeth were sitting around the table discussing about, oh, 
how awesome it was for, for Harry and Meghan to go on Oprah. I doubt that they were thinking, this is going to better our relationship. The fact that they aired our dirty laundry, that we look like fools to the world. And is that what God would want for us as a church? Would God want us to go into public and to air our dirty laundry in public? What we know about the Corinthians is that they were a litigious people. They were a people that loved to debate and to argue. Theirs was a mindset that said, I am right no matter the cost. I am always right no matter the cost. And so they were going in to public, they were going to the courts, and they were airing dirty laundry. And verse 1 as we jump into the book of 1 Corinthians, verse 1 says this. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? First of all, he says, he doesn't say if, he says when. It's a bit like when, when I was a kid and we'd go on uh, family vacations or, or long trips in the car. It wasn't a matter of if my siblings and I would get into arguments in the car. It was a matter of when. So the problem was not that they were having these arguments, these debates, these issues. It was how they were handling them. And these issues generally, we believe, centered on uh, property disputes. Minor property disputes, likely a, a minor monetary dispute where someone felt that they had been wronged. So you get Paul's frustration as he's writing this. How dare you? Why are you doing this? He can't believe what he has heard. And so what was transpiring was a bit of like small claims court to decide the affairs of the church. It was as if Judge Judy was deciding the affairs of the court. See, in those days, the courts were seen as a type of amusement, a type of entertainment. They, were, they had no Netflix back then. Uh, that was uh, part of my research. I found that out. They had no Netflix back then. So they would go to the courts and find out these salacious details, find out what's going on. And so as this was playing out, as Judge Judy was determining who was right and who was wrong, I, I'm sure most of us are at least... Uh, kind of familiar with Judge Judy. But if you watch Judge Judy, uh, the story arc is always the same, right? The judge comes in, the defendants and the plaintiffs come in, and they state their case. And at some point, one of uh, either the defendant or the plaintiff will speak out of turn. They'll disrespect the judge, and she'll turn on him. She always does. She'll call him a liar. You're a liar. And then she'll roll her eyes at them. Oh, come on. she's, She's sussing it out. She's figured it out. And then they lose their case. And at the end of the episode, the two parties are interviewed. And on the scales of justice, you have 
the one who is happy because they won their case, and then you have the one that is sad because they lost. But there's no reconciliation of the relationship, and they leave just as broken and divided as when they came in. So what's the point? They were losing more than they could have ever gained in the courts, as far as the Corinthians are concerned. They looked like fools in front of their community. Their witness and their testimony was devastated because they looked just as messed up, if not worse, than the world. And on top of that, God looked powerless to settle even these minor disputes within the church. And their relationships with one another were broken and divided, and how could they be repaired? Last week, Pastor Kevin talked about these major issues that the Corinthians were dealing with, these major problems, well, I should say that they weren't dealing with. They were giving a pass to these major issues in their church, and yet they were spending so much time and so much energy on these petty, small issues. Absolutely, absolutely go to the courts for major things. Go to the courts if someone has drained your retirement account. Go to the courts if some type of assault has occurred. But how dare you go to the courts for these minor issues? How dare you go before the unrighteous? How dare you go before those who have no standing in the church? How dare you go before unbelievers? See, what they were doing was they were inviting the world in to determine the affairs of the church. Paul is trying to tell them, we have all that we need within the church to determine these minor disputes, to determine these minor issues. We wouldn't go to a mechanic when we need to go to a doctor. And it's not that these judges could not follow the letter of the law, though oftentimes when we examine our own judicial system, we realize that we are oftentimes left wanting more. Like more can be done. There's more to justice. And the true justice of God involves not only justice, but grace and mercy and forgiveness. When we pursue personal justice, it only leads to broken relationships, a lost testimony, and more division within our church. If we pursue retribution, then retribution is all that we'll get. But Paul is, is telling the Corinthians, he's telling us to take our issues to the saints. He wants us to take our issues to the saints because they are, also, they are capable of determining right and wrong, but they're more concerned with maintaining righteous relationships. They know us. They love us. And their desire is the peace and the unity of the church through reconciliation and the reparation of our fractured relationships. 
So in verse 2 and 3, Paul begins a series of rhetorical questions. He says, do you not know that you will judge the world? Do you not know that you will judge angels? Well, to be honest, no, right? It's not something that we talk about a lot on, in, on Sunday mornings in the pulpit. But what Paul is referring to is uh, the uh, book of Daniel. Now, Daniel had this fantastic gift he, that God had given him to uh, interpret dreams. And so Daniel has this vision of the throne room of God in Daniel chapter 7. And you might, uh, you might mark that in your Bible next to verses 2 and 3. But he has this vision, and this is what he says in, in verse 10. He says, A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Paul is telling the Corinthians, that's you. That's you in the courtroom, in the, in the throne room of God, in the throne room of Christ. That is you judging the world. That is us as Restoration Church alongside the Corinthians judging the world with Christ. He is saying that we will rule and reign in redemption with the risen Christ, the risen King. And not only that, but we will judge angels. The angels that have fallen with Satan. We will judge not angels. We often think of angels as these uh, amazing, majestic, otherworldly, greater than us beings. But angels don't know grace. Angels have not received mercy and forgiveness. They know nothing of salvation. We do we have been reconciled to Christ. So when relationships are damaged within our church, we should be able to come alongside and help to repair those who are hurting, those who feel wronged. Here's why Paul wants us to go to the saints. Here's why Paul says, he wants us to go to the saints because the saints know us. They know both parties. They love us. They possess the wisdom of God. They will listen to us till the end. And they will not only seek resolution but reconciliation. If we've been reconciled to God, we should be able to reconcile interpersonal issues. The saint's ultimate goal is the peace and the unity in the body of Christ, maintained in love for one another. This is the message that we're trying to portray to the world. Not that we dislike one another. Not that we can't stand each other. Not that we can't get along and get over minor issues. 
And so Paul says in verse 5, he says, I'm saying this to your shame. He's not saying, oh, hey, you guys are on the right track. He's not encouraging them to do better. He's not saying, hey, you'll get there eventually. Here's a pat on the back. I know you guys are working at it. No, he's saying this, I am saying this to shame you into right action. These are issues that you need to correct now. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the message when he says, I say this as bluntly as I can to wake you up to the stupidity of what you are doing. It's nonsensical. Why, why are you doing this? It's not worth your time. You get the frustration that keeps mounting from Paul here. Surely there is someone among you wise enough to settle this dispute. Surely there has to be someone who can handle this. But even if there wasn't, Paul gives an option that would be far greater than going before secular courts and making a spectacle out of themselves and their brother or sister in Christ and their church. Take the loss. It's already a defeat for you. Verse 7, he says this. He says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? They were shaming their right standing before God for a right standing before man. On top of that, if there was no one within the church that could settle this dispute, if there was no one in the church wise enough to settle this dispute, then he puts the onus on us. He says, you preserve the unity of the body of Christ by just taking the loss. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 40, that it was better to be wronged than to seek retribution. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. See, the Corinthians wanted their retribution. They wanted repaid plus interest. Who knows what, what the actual issue was? Perhaps it was something as simple as, I helped this person out, and they weren't thankful for it. So I'm going to take them to court, and I'm going to get repaid for what I did for them. I'm going to get a public apology as well. I'm going, to, I'm going to make them look like a fool in our community. They still wanted to look good in front of man. Their old identity still resonated with them. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They were still living as if they were unrighteous. They were living like the world and their immaturity and their immorality were on full display for everyone to see. They were still trying to swindle their brothers. They were trying to be greedy. They were trying to steal from their own brothers. But they have a new identity in Christ. In verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is who we are in Christ. We have been washed, sanctified, justified. It's important for us to remember that. It's important for us to humble ourselves in the sight of our brothers and sisters and sometimes take the loss. Because it's more important for us to have right relationships than to be proven right. We must prioritize love and forgiveness and unity in our friendships rather than vindication every time we're wronged. It was uh, Associate Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia who said, uh, in reference to this passage of Scripture, he said this, Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as a parish priest, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we are too ready today to see vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. This is so contrary to our American culture, right? I'm going to sue you. I think about those people that get their piping hot lattes from Starbucks with no lid. And inevitably, as soon as they drive off, it spills in their lap, right? And they've got, they've got third-degree burns. So now they need their medical bills paid. They need their car cleaned. They need pain and suffering paid out. Oh yeah, and they just spilled their coffee, so they need another coffee, and it better be free. But maybe we're not to the point of, of suing one another. But do we gossip? Do we go to our friends and say, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so did to me? Do we post it on Facebook and make sure we tag that person so they see just how they wronged us? I'll be honest, oftentimes I get on, I get on uh, Facebook and I'll see something that gets, gets me all riled up. 
Now, I, and I think I'm going to get this person. It's, oh, it's on now. They're not going to know what hit them. And so I type out this long response, and the cursor's just sitting there blinking at me. Blink, blink. And it's the moment of truth. And football coach Herm Edwards uh, put it wisely when he said, don't press send. And I think about that, and I think, don't press send. Don't do it. So I delete. And then I write it all out again. And this process repeats itself until I get to the point where I'm like, you know what? Caution to the wind. Send. (laughs) And it's that moment when I, I realize that I look like a jerk. I can't take it back. I hurt feelings. It's at that moment when I realize that I'm not pursuing unity. What do my non-Christian friends think when they scroll through their newsfeed and they see, oh, Zach posted this. I'm not looking very Christ-like at that moment. I'm not looking like a good representation of Christ. When I was a kid, I loved summertime. Summertime was baseball season. Also, there was no school, so that was, that was awesome. But uh, I would call up my cousins and say, hey, you want to come up and, and play baseball in our front yard? We had a pretty big front yard. And so they would come up and play. And uh, the teams were always the same. The teams were always the same. It was myself with my cousin Jeremy and then my brother Matthew with my cousin Kyle. And we never set an innings limit. We never set a time limit on the game. And thinking back in hindsight, that probably would have been a good idea because the games always ended the same way. In fact, I don't think that we ever finished the game. There, there was never a winner Now that we're in our 30s, maybe we ought to just take it up for one last time and determine who who is the greatest after all. But the games always ended the same way, and I can still hear my cousin Jeremy yelling at Kyle, you always do this, Kyle, because Kyle was the oldest, and so if he called you out, you were out. And it always seemed to be against us. It never seemed fair. And so it was at that point when baseball ceased to be fun. It wasn't representing what it should have been. Just fun with my cousins, fun with my brother, fun hanging out. So when we are divided, when we are fighting with one another, What do we represent to the world? When our community views our church, do they see a group of people that have come alongside one another in love with a common goal to know Christ and to make Christ known? Or do we resemble more the Corinthians with constant fighting, constant bickering, We must prioritize the harmony of the gospel and the unity 
of the body of Christ. What's important is that we're a group of people coming together to love God and to love people. So what if I pose this question for us to think about today? Maybe God doesn't care so much about how we've been wronged in these trivial, petty matters that we seem, we seem to think are important to us. Maybe He cares more about how we come alongside one another in love. Maybe He cares more that we extend grace to one another and forgiveness to each other in order to preserve the unity of the body of Christ after we've been wronged. The best thing that I, I can think of for us to do when, I, when we feel that we've been wronged is to go to that person. Seek reconciliation personally. That person may not even know that they've wronged us in some way. And if that doesn't work, then seek mature brothers and sisters to help us mediate the issue. But ultimately, if that doesn't work, it's on us to forgive that person. It's on us to extend them grace and to move on. Let's pray.